Good morning, church. Hope you guys are doing good. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to the book of Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah. We're going to kind of hit the tail end of chapter one and then get into chapter two. But I want to go ahead and read our passage of scripture for you guys today. If you've got a Bible, like I said, Jonah chapter one, go down to verse 15. That's going to where we start. And then we're going to go through Jonah's prayer all the way through after that. This is the word of the Lord. Jonah 1, 15. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your ways and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the land. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for letting us into the cozy confines of fish intestines, letting us see the prayer of one of your prophets. Holy Spirit, I thank you that that we have recorded a story that I hope we can see ourselves in, that I hope we can most importantly see Jesus in. Jesus, I know that as I show up here today and I, I come to bring your word, I'm speaking to a people who have experienced their own set of storms, many maybe even experiencing those storms right now. Many who may be even here listening feeling like Jonah in this passage, like the world is closing in around them, crying out for help in desperate need of you. And Jesus, I I know that you hear and you answer. And Jonah's prayer is, is a reminder that God, our salvation and our means of being delivered through circumstances rarely, if ever, look like, feel like, even smell like what we think they should. And Father, we, we, we come to you today just asking for help. And Father, forgive us for the times when we have asked for help and then told you what your help should look like, demanded that your help be a certain way, and refused to surrender to your help unless it looked like our help in our mind. Jesus, you reign supreme. If nobody hears anything else today but your gospel, they will heard just enough. Your gospel, the good news that we are more sinful than we ever dared to imagine, but we are more loved than we ever hoped to dream. That is the news that I hope we hear today. That is the only thing that can change. That is the only thing that can reconcile. That is the only thing that can redeem us out of what we've got ourselves into so that we can get into you. I pray today that through the preaching of your word, you would change lives. That people would come to a place where they fully understand what it means to be in Christ. We would die to our flesh, and we would live to you. We would see ourselves in Jonah, and we would see you in him as well. In your name, amen. All right. So we read this passage, and we started out kind of at this place where Jonah's getting ready to get thrown over the, uh, over the boat. And, and one of the things that we talked about last week is this story of Jonah, and it's a real-life story that really happened. Jesus uh, mentioned Jonah. He mentioned the things that happened here. 
One of the things that we see in this story is that if you just kind of boil it down to the two irreducible minimums, this is a story about how we as God's creation have this tendency to resist his leadership, to resist his love. We do that resisting and we run from him. And then God, he has a propensity to chase us, to continue to pursue despite the fact that we're continuing to run. That the Bible really is a story of humans running, creation running, children running, and God, the Father, the Creator, chasing after us, going to unimaginable length to chase down children who are running. And we talked about how these two terms, this running and this chasing, they really have words that are talked about often in the Bible. Running is sin. That's what the Bible calls sin. It's our times where we go, God, I have a better plan than you do. I have a better will than you do. And I'm going to do things my way instead of your way. That is me in my sin saying, I'm missing the mark that God wants me to go after. And I'm going after my mark. I'm going after my way. But God, in his chasing, it's us seeing God's grace. It's his love. It's his compassion. That's what the Bible calls the chasing of God. It is the grace of God fueled by love to meet people wherever they happen to have run to. Now, I want to talk about those two things really quickly before we dive into this to kind of give us a bedrock foundation. Because when we start talking about grace, what you need to understand is, and we've talked about this a little bit already, is grace is twofold. Grace to the sinner is saving grace. Grace to the person saved is also something they continue to receive. So some of you may have had this weird misconception that just because you're saved, you don't need God's grace anymore. But grace, if you read scripture, is not just saving grace. Grace is also sustaining grace. Grace is what gives you the power to overcome even after you've been saved. You've received salvation. Because you need to understand how that's grace and it's kind of twofold nature of saving and sustaining because sin has a twofold nature as well. Sin is something that you need to be saved from the penalty of. All right. The penalty of sin. Bible will lay this out very clear. It's right there in the very beginning. God said the wages of sin is death. If you eat the fruit from this tree, he tells Adam and Eve, you will surely die. See, there's a penalty to sin. There's always been a penalty to sin. But along with the penalty of sin, there's something that we, even if we are saved, can still experience and needs God's grace in the middle of. Because God's grace doesn't just save us from the penalty of sin. It also saves us from the power of sin. The power to sin to continue to allow you to have those urges for the things that you want. The power of sin that that continues to tempt you, even though you realize that you've tasted and seen that this is bad for me, but I'll continue to maybe go down that lane. See, we need saving and sustaining grace because many of us in this room, you're believers, you're Christians. And because we continue to resist the will of God and his leadership, even though we're saved, what we're missing out on is God saving us from the power of sin in our lives. You've maybe been freed up from the penalty. But you need to be freed up from its power in your life. It's power to ruin marriages. It's power to continue to have you struggling with the same things you've been struggling with for so long. It's power to keep you anxious, to keep you fearful, to keep you depressed. We need to also be saved from sin's power. And if last week was all about how we as God's people, we tend to run from him, we tend to sin. This week is about how God in his loving kindness continues to chase after us. So let's dive in. No pun intended. Start right here at verse 15. <laughs> and I wanted to start here because I felt like I left some fruit on the trees last week. Um, verse 15, I love this. And I, and I went and I kind of, I actually read it in the NIV and a word, uh, these couple of words really stuck out to me. Uh, it says, then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. And this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And the Lord provided A, we really want to emphasize that A, a huge fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. I want to camp out on this word overboard. When I read this, I started to think, how many times in my life have I had moments when I felt like that kind of faith was overboard? And I don't know, maybe this is even where that terminology came from. You ever had anybody say that to you? Like, hey, okay, I get what you're doing there, but that's a little overboard. That's too much. See, even in this story, Jonah told him, he was like, guys, listen, you got to throw me overboard. And all of the pagan captains and mariners on the ship, they were like, Jonah, we hear you, but that's overboard. 
And what did they say they did? It said they started rowing and rowing harder and harder and harder. And again, you, when you're rowing against God, you're not going anywhere. So finally they realized, we've got to throw Jonah overboard. I remember one of the first overboard Christian moments I experienced in my life. We were in eighth grade. I grew up in a home where we did not go to church. Maybe we'd go random on Easter. I would go if I spent the night at one of my cousin's house who they were very religious and we would have Devo times. I had no idea what that was and I did not make it easy on them. But anyway, we didn't go to church and we started going to church when I was in eighth grade. So we're going to church and I was like, wow, this is interesting. I grew up in a home with all sorts of kind of craziness some abuse, some, some substance use, some, a little bit of everything. It was not a, uh, all bad. It was kind of a roller coaster and you never really knew what house you were getting ready to walk into. Well, in eighth grade, something happened. Um, this guy, Hewlett Cook, invited my, my dad to church, and he started taking us. And, and I'll tell you guys, by the grace of God, things really did begin to change in my family for a little while. And one of the biggest changes that I began to experience is we started eating dinner around the table all together at once. And if that wasn't enough, we also started praying like saying the blessing before dinner. Now, we didn't pray at any other meal, and we had never, I mean never, ever prayed together as a family up until that moment. And I'm there, and like, you know, we prayed a couple of times, and then I'll never forget this moment. Um, my mom, she goes, we all should hold hands. <laughs> and as an eighth grader, I was like, okay, I'm glad that this faith stuff is kind of taking place. I'm glad that you guys are seeming to argue less. I'm glad that maybe it seems like there's less Bud Light in the refrigerator uh, now than it used to be. I'm glad that these things are happening, but you're asking me to hold hands with my little sister? That's overboard. That's too much. Like, this is getting weird, okay? But I come to this verse, and I want to pick out that word because maybe for some of you, the word that you need for 2023 is overboard. God's looking for some overboard acts of faith. Now, and I don't mean to push you on this pod, but with Jonah's case, and it may be your case, the level that he had to go overboard was in direct correlation to how disobedient he had been. So the more disobedient I'm being, maybe the more overboard I need to go on some things. I think it's time that maybe you be ready and willing for people to say about your faith, man, that's overboard. You're waking up how early? To read and pray, that's overboard. You're using vacation days to go on a mission trip? Well, that's kind of overboard. You go to church every Sunday, not just those Sundays where nothing else good is on the table? That's overboard. You're quitting this great job. Man, it's six figures. So you can spend time more at home, being a better father, mother. You're downsizing your house. You're buying a 2004 Toyota instead of a brand new Tesla? So that you can be freed up to be more generous with your money? That's a little bit overboard, don't you think? Here's one. You're going to stay in Henry County despite how crazy and bad everything is getting? You mean to tell me you, you want to be salt and light and a solution to your city instead of complaining about it until you work up enough fear to run from it like I'm doing? That's overboard. You're crazy. See, the problem with us is we want God's overboard type of blessings, but we don't have overboard type of obedience. We have this obedience to God that just fits right in this American Christian standard version of following him. And for some of us, you have found yourself in a, in a place where it is going to take overboard measures to surrender back into the obedience and direction of God. Now, what I, the good news here is overboard was repentance. Overboard was this big, swift action. I'm telling you, if Jonah stays on the boat, we don't have this story. He's just dead. There's nothing worth learning from him. There's plenty of stories that God already had about his wrath and vengeance when people did what was wrong. But this is a story of redemption. This is a story of God's grace. This is a story that I hope you can learn that it will take some overboard measures for us as his people if we want to see overboard blessing. So we see this go on. Uh, we see Jonah get overboard and then grace meets him and eats him. The Lord provides this great fish. Now I love in this passage because um, the fish does exactly what it's supposed to. Again, this is a book full of irony. It's full of stuff like if you read it, it's, if you read it and you read it slow, it's funnier the more you read it. Because Jonah, again, the prophet of God, he doesn't do anything that God asks him to do. Yet, God, there's no story about the fish swimming to Tarshish. It's just Jonah. 
God tells the fish to go get him. The fish goes and gets him. It's the Lord who provided the huge fish. The fish swallows him up. And then we get into chapter two, verse one. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Now, what did it just say right before then? He was in the belly of the fish for how long? He was there for three days. I don't know if you're tracking with the words I'm tracking with, but the way I read it is he's in there for three days. Then, I don't know how long it would take you to be in the belly of a whale before you started praying. <laughs> and I know we all would like to guess that we would have started praying immediately. Oh, woo, I would get, all, get in the water the moment my feet, some of you can't swim. You would have started praying as soon as you were falling. Oh, yeah, Jesus. But what we see here is Jonah takes three days. Now, there's all sorts of different arguments on what's going on here. Some people say that if, if the story of Jonah in the belly of the well is supposed to uh, kind of be this precursor to what we see in Jesus in the tomb, then, then maybe Jonah is dead. Maybe Jonah is asleep. That's the reason we don't see him praying immediately. I, I, I don't know. I know that he's alive once he hits the water. He's not dead then. So there's all sorts of speculation around this. But the point I would try to make here for, for many of us, because you hopefully are not going into the belly of a well anytime soon. Hopefully that's not going to be how God chooses to use and deliver your life. But many of us, when storms happen in our life, and we know these storms are a direct result of our disobedience to God, many of us refuse to cry out. We're like the kid who gets in the argument with their parents and says, well, I, I don't want to eat this food. Well, you got to eat this food. If you don't eat this food, I'm not giving you anything else. And, 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 and we know deep down inside, we can feel this hunger. Like, you ever been there as a kid? You ever been a parent with one of your kids there? I don't want to eat it. Well, you're not getting anything else until you eat it. I'll put it in the fridge. The next time you're hungry, you're going to eat this food. And you just kind of dig your heels in the sand. Well, God kind of does that with us too. But we've all had those moments where we go, I'll show her. I'll show him. I'll show mom and dad. I'll see how long I can go. I'll go to bed hungry. And you wake up in the morning and you expect there to be this new breakfast because your parents caved in on you. And they've got laying out last night's dinner. And you go, well, I'll just go to school. But eventually, what happens? You're not going to make it three days. You're going to eventually get hungry. You're going to eventually give in. And so much pain and stuff could have been avoided if we weren't so stubborn. See, I think Jonah's maybe even inside the belly of the well, still stubborn. And what's crazy here is contrast where he went from to where he is. You know? He's there on the, in, in the ship headed out to Tarshish. He's on the road, and I mean, picture the scene from Titanic, you know, Jonah's just there on the edge. I mean, he's on the sea, just vast openness, just, and that's kind of how sin starts out. It's just so much freedom, wind in my hair, the wind at my back pushing me along to where I want to go. I'm my own captain. I'm my own master. Wide open, endless possibilities. I see where sin takes him. Down, 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 until eventually he's in the stomach acid of a great fish. You want to see what that's like? Close your eyes real quick. I'm not, nothing's going to bad, bad's going to happen. I, I was trying to talk Eric into finding a way to where we could like 4D this message and like have mist come out to you guys and, and do all these things and make, make it smell like fish guts in here. He was kind of opposed. Um, but what I want you to understand is he's in a really, really, really dark place. There's no freedom. There's no movement. This isn't one of those uh, veggie tale stories where he's inside the fish and like in, in, in uh, Titus and Ezra's Bible, like Jonah has a candle somehow and, he, and it's lit and he's inside the belly of the fish with a candle lit, like talking about stuff. I, that's, that's, that did not happen. He's in a really, really dark place. And God wanted him in a really, really dark place. And it's really scary for me to say this to you. I don't only say it because I've even felt it in my own life. Sometimes God may want you in a really, really dark place to see that he is the only light there is. See that he's the only truth there is and that he's the only way out of the darkness you're in. So it takes him three days and he begins to pray. And I want you to see some special things. We're gonna kind of walk through this prayer nice and easy and see what we can learn from his prayer. He prays, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. See, what we see here is Jonah turning the tide on where he's at. 
He says, I called out to the Lord. I, I called and I cried. And these are actually, this called and this cried is kind of two different Hebrew words there. This is like a holler, like a shout. Like this is Jonah not being timid with his call and his cry out to God. He's letting it be visibly, totally, apparently known that this is what's going on. He's saying, I cried out to the Lord in my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. Some of you are like, what is this, this thing? Why is it capitalized? This, for the Hebrew understanding, the, the, the Jews, Hebrew, Hebrew Israelites, this is what they would have understood. Sheol was this place where dead people went. So when he says this, from the belly of Sheol, I cried, what he's saying is, I, and again, track the, the metaphor he's using. I'm not just in Sheol, I'm in the belly. I'm at the dead center of it. He says, I, I'm in distress, and you're hearing my voice. He's saying, I'm at the center of hell. I'm at the center of the afterlife. I'm, at the, I'm, as, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm as good as dead. But he says, even from there, you hear my voice. To which I would say, to anybody who has maybe been running from God or has experienced sin, your sin and the distance that you feel like you have traveled from God has not created an inch of distance between an omnipresent everywhere at once God. He hears Jonah's cry because he is right there with him. He goes on from there and says, for you cast me into the deep. Jonah understands why this happened. He understands who did this. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Again, he's not saying you put me in the seas. He's saying you put me in the heart of the seas. He's giving personification to the sea. He's giving personification to Sheol. He's saying, I'm at the center of this. I'm at the, the very core of as worse as it could possibly get. You put me in the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All of whose waves, your waves, and your billows passed over me. He, he's explaining and expressing to God that he understands and realizes now that this thing that is happening was sent by God. In a second, we're going to see how he is actually begins to praise God and tell God that this is what he is thankful for. What we never see once in Jonah's prayer is Jonah praying that God would deliver him from the fish. What we see is Jonah thanking God that he is delivering him through the fish. Wild prayer here. He goes on and he says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now there's something we can learn about the condition that sin puts us in. There's something to learn about what darkness does to the human heart when we get into it. He said, I am driven away from your sight. Now, who said that? God or Jonah? Jonah. See, again, I told you this very, at the very beginning of week one. Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you forget that there is nowhere that you can go that's outside of God's sight. You can't get on a boat and go down to Joppa. You can't get on that boat and go down to Tarshish. You can't go down to the bottom of the boat and escape from God's sight. But Jonah, and again, this is even part of his prayer, but he's confessing even the stupid things that he said. He's confessing even the dumb things that he thought he could do. He's confessing the voice of shame that he let be himself believe that really was a lie. He said, I, I, here's God, here's what was going on. God, here's where I was mentally. I said, I'm driven away from your sight. But was he? No, he wasn't. God had his eye on him the whole entire time. And he's got his eye on you the whole entire time. There's never been a moment in your life, good, bad, when things were crazy, when things were great, where God ever took his eye off of you. He is your father. And so don't believe the lie that he's given up on you. Don't believe the lie that he's not watching. He's watching wherever you are. He's watching whatever you do. He sees it all. He says, yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple. There's another time, if you were listening when we read through this at the very beginning, you see this thing happening where Jonah is in the ocean, deep in the ocean, inside the belly of the well, but he's talking about a place in the desert in a building. He's saying, here I am in this incredibly dark, wet situation, but where I am looking, where I am fixing my focus back to is the temple. He mentions it here and he mentions it again. He's saying, I'm going to turn my attention back towards the temple. Maybe, hopefully, if you're reading this slow, you're beginning to ask yourself, well, what's going on there? Why is he focusing this attention? What can I learn about where my focus should be in the storms of life by what Jonah is saying here that I'm not going to look at what I think God was what I think God was doing, but I'm going to turn my attention and turn my focus back 
to the temple. The reason that Jonah keeps talking about a temple while he's drowning is that Jonah was a Jew. And for a Jewish person, the center of the world was Jerusalem. Track with me here. We're going to go down a uh, Hebrew rabbit hole, and you're going to learn some things that maybe you would not have if you had not discovered this aspect of what Jonah is saying. And there's so much meat, there's so much gospel in this little thing that you would miss if you didn't see it about him looking and turning his eyes, even though he cannot see because he's in bleak darkness, to the temple. See, Israel was the country of the Jews, and Jerusalem was that main city there in Israel. And Jerusalem is the one place in the world where three continents connect in the land. The Hebrew prophets, they even talked about Jerusalem uh, of being the, the navel of civilization, the navel of the world. See, in the Jewish mind, the center of the world was Israel. And the center of Israel was the capital city, Jerusalem. And the center of Jerusalem was the temple. And the center of the temple was this room, this room called the Holy of Holies. And the temple, what it was, was a picture of where God dwells. Now, again, they understood and knew that God was not confined to this little GPS coordinates that was the temple there in Jerusalem, but they gave him those GPS coordinates so that that could be an anchoring place where they could come and connect with that God. And there, in the center of that room, that was the Holy of Holies, there was a box called the Ark of the Covenant. And that box held the original tablets that were the Ten Commandments of God. That's the Holy of Holies. And that's the, the place where these commandments go. And I need you to understand what these commandments represent. Again, I'm gonna, we're going to break this all full circle. Just track with me here. These commandments represented the true and good life for God's people. They represented God's perfect leadership and guidance, that if you can live by these, this will be the true, perfect, good life that you were destined to have. You have um, this life that I've created for you if you obey these laws. Now, the problem was, you know this, nobody could obey those laws. Because nobody could obey those laws, only one time a year someone could even enter that room where those laws were kept. It was a day called the Day of Atonement. And so, the reason, some of the reason why Jonah is saying, I'm looking back towards your temple is because Jonah in his heart, in his mind, in his understanding, because again, he is a Jewish prophet of God. He knows that what the temple represents is the place where atoning sacrifice for sin takes place. See, once a year, they're in the center of that room that was the center of the temple, that was in the center of Jerusalem, that was the center of the world for anybody who was a Hebrew, the Day of Atonement took place. And what a priest would do on the Day of Atonement is he would go into that Holy of Holies. And there on the Ark of the Covenant, there was this thing called the Hilasterion. That's the way it's translated in Greek. It's known as the Mercy Seat. It's essentially the lid that covers this box that is the Ark of the Covenant that contains the Ten Commandments of God. And what the priest would do is he would go into this Holy of Holies and he would take a spotless, unblemished lamb. And he would cut that lamb and make it bleed. And then what he would do, and this is once a year on the Day of Atonement, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people, he would take that blood of the lamb and he would take it and he would wipe it on top of the hilasterion. This, this hilasterion is also known as the mercy seat. It's the lid that covers the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the reason they would do this, and track with me, I know this is like, what are we talking about here? This is so complex. Just walk with me here. The reason they do this is because sin requires sacrifice for forgiveness. Now, for a second, I want you to get outside of your little on, on planet Earth perspective and get in God's perspective. And this is the way they thought this. This is the way they understood this. And this is what they wanted to see when they thought about what God was seeing as he looked down upon the sacrifice. So the temple is the place where God's supposed to dwell. God looks down from heaven, and there in the Ark of the Covenant, there's what? The Ten Commandments of God. God's rules and regulation to all his people around him, all those people there on planet Earth, all the things that they're supposed to live by, obey, and do right. But what God knows is the same thing that everybody there, including the priest, knows, is that no one was capable of doing that. And so the whole purpose of placing the blood above the law that's in the box, 
The whole purpose of placing the blood on the lid of the box is so that when God looks down from his mercy seat in heaven, from his throne in heaven, what he sees is a sacrificial blood that is covering the sins, the inability of the people to keep up with, to live with, to obey all of the regulations that were bound up inside of those Ten Commandments. Now, you're like, what does it have to do with my life? Well, Jonah was saying, in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my failure, in the midst of me running away from God, I am looking back to the temple. I am looking back to the place where a price has been paid, where blood has been shed so that I could be forgiven. Because more than knowing that I'm in God's good graces is knowing that God's good grace has met me, that there is a payment that has been paid for the sins I'm even now committing. It's as if Jonah is, is turning his eyes to know, okay, I did this in this year. In coming up, hopefully, if I make it out of this situation, there's going to come a day of atonement where these sins, my running, is going to be atoned for. But what he's doing here is he's not just pointing to the moment where he has a day of atonement. He's pointing to the moment where we all have a day of atonement. If you have a Bible, I wanted you to go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26. If you're looking for a new habit to get into in the new year, I would say bring your Bible to church is the best one. You guys are really good about it. I can hear all these pages turning. I love it. It's one of my favorite sounds in the whole world. Romans chapter three, verse 21 through 26. Listen to this. This is how Jonah is pointing to the true and greater one that would come after him. The true and greater Jesus. Verse 21 of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Okay, so what he's saying here is somehow we're able to become righteous with God apart from obeying the law. We couldn't do that anyway. But somehow a solution has come in that wasn't obey the law solution. It's a grace solution. We'll find out. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So I can have righteousness apart from the law if I have faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to explain why that's possible as he continues to go here. For there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. You know what that Greek word right there is? Helasterion. Jesus comes and is put forward as a sin offering, the place of propitiation. He is hearkened back to as the lid of the golden ark. He is the place where now when God looks down, he doesn't see the sin of a, a lamb because that could have never really done the trick. That could have never really sustained. That could have never been perfect. That's why the priest had to go in there and do it year after year after year after year. And what Jesus comes in, he becomes a true and greater high priest and he becomes a true and greater lamb of God. And he is sacrificed once and for all. And he is the hilasterion. He is the propitiation for our sin. He is the payment. He is the mercy seat. And so to go to where Jonah's at here, when he says, I shall again look to your holy temple, let's be new covenant people now. We're New Testament people. We don't have a temple in Jerusalem that's the center of the earth. Who is the temple? I gave it away. I should have said, what is the temple? Who is it? Where's our temple? Who's our temple? John two nineteen. Jesus said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will build it back. The reason he said that, guys, the reason he said, destroy the temple, I'll build it back, was because he was the temple. So to wrap this all up and make this make sense, in our brains, for us as people here, in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my storm, in the midst of the things that are going wrong in my life, whether it's a storm that I'm in because I made mistakes and went disobedient to God, or it's a storm that I'm in, and I'm more like the mariners in this story, it's a storm that I'm in because of somebody else's disobedience and their stupidity. Regardless of why I'm in the storm, what I can know is that my call, my encouragement and plea from God is to look to the temple. 
to look to Jesus. And if Jesus was the temple, the place that we look to him is the place where the temple was being destroyed. In the midst of your storm, it gives us a reminder to look again to your temple. In the midst of you feeling like, man, it could never get any worse than this. How could God let this happen to me? I look to the cross. And I go, man, if, if somehow, some way, God, the Father, could let that happen to his only begotten son, that he could go through a, a, a torturous, painful separation from his father like that, then, then maybe what's happened, maybe my debt really isn't that bad. Maybe, maybe what's going on in my family really isn't that bad. Maybe the, 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 there is still hope in this because I'm telling you, your situation has not yet reached a place where it is as hopeless as Good Friday was. It hadn't got that hopeless yet. And if our God can have the temple be broken and destroyed, and for three days later, it'd be completely rebuilt and there'd be complete resurrection, then that is the only place to look in the storm. I'm not looking to, to popular opinions. I'm not looking to find some book or new podcast that will get me out of this. The place in the midst of my storm, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my brokenness, the place I look, I again look, is the holy temple. I look to Jesus. He goes on from here and Continues in his prayer in verses five and six. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. See, he's not just going down a little ways into the water. He's saying, I went all the way down to the bottom. I sunk to the depths. Getting choked out by seaweed. The roots of the mountain were my location. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. But God, he says, yet you brought my life up from the pit. Now, what I need you to know and understand about our God, what I need you to know and understand about Jesus is we don't have a God who brings you up from the pit by just having some divine magnetism that goes, you're way down there, I'm way up here, and just, I don't wanna get my hands dirty. I don't want to get, like, you're in, the, you're in the well of a fish. How many of you ever gone fishing? You caught a fish or two? How many of you ever take somebody fishing with you and they want to go fishing, but they don't want to get the hook out? You got those people in your life? Yeah, I don't want to touch it. I want to, I want to catch it. I want to eat it. I want it fried, but I don't want to get the hook out. We got those people in our life. But we don't have a God like that. Our God goes, okay, you're in the belly of a fish. I'm going all the way down. And again, guys, that is Jesus. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to save you. I'm going to step in heaven. I don't get my hands dirty. He said, I'm going to go all the way down. I'm going to go down to Galilee. I'm going to walk and talk with people. I'm going to go down on my knees and get filthy dirt out of my disciples' feet. I'm going to show you that I'm a Savior who doesn't just begrudgingly go down, but I'm a Savior who goes down to the pit. And there is no pit that you could go to there's no death that your depression can take you. There's no death that your sin can take you. That Jesus isn't joyfully. In the book of Hebrews, it says that he is saving to the uttermost. That means that even though you may feel like you have sinned to the uttermost, you have not. And even if you feel like you have, he saves to the uttermost. Which there's no link that his salvation cannot reach you. Whether you're at the very bottom of the ocean, or you're at whatever metaphorical bottom of the ocean, you feel like your sin has taken you. He meets us still there. In verse seven, he says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came up to you, again, to your holy temple. He knows that it is, it is there at the temple that his source and supply, his forgiveness and his redemption is possible. And we have to know that too. We have to know that that's where our prayers are going to. That even though it may feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling, they're not, friend. They're making it all the way to Jesus. He hears them. He's coming. His help is on the way. In verse eight, he says, this is where he begins to change his tone of hair. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, some commentaries, they say, well, okay, well, this is Jonah talking about the mariners, the guys on the boat. 
This is him saying, well, they, they, they are uh, sacrificing to vain. They have idols in their pocket, and they were on the boat when the storm came. They're all blah, 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 blah. Uh, and, but then about half of the other people, they would say, this is not Jonah talking about the mariners. This is Jonah talking about Jonah. This is Jonah confessing his sin. Because Jonah is one of those who paid regard to the vain idol and forsook the hope of steadfast love. Now, I, I'm in this camp. Now, idolatry takes many different forms. And those Ten Commandments that we were talking about that were contained within the Ark of the Covenant, you, you know them, you've, you've seen them, you've you know, shared posts about them. Th- those Ten Commandments that were there, you don't break any of the Nine Commandments without first breaking the, breaking the commandment to have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not commit idolatry is the command that is broken before every other command. It is the root sin, idolatry. And the sin that Jonah is committing here is idolatry. Now, Jonah may be unlike the guys on the boat. He doesn't have a little God figurine in his pocket that he can pull out when he wakes up and finally gets up to, this, uh, up to the deck and start rubbing it and thinking, okay, um, you know, whatever little thing, you just make the storm stop. Like, that's not where Jonah's at. Jonah's idol is not the figurine. Jonah's idol is the you God. Jonah's idol is thinking that God does what I do, that I, in my opinion about who God is, is the most important thing, is the centrifugal thing. And the God I worship is the God who does things, thinks like things, makes things happen like I think they should. And see what happens when we do that. And again, we're all in danger of this. Most of us, we don't have little God idol figurines in our pocket. Some of you have a cell phone and that's pretty close. That's a sermon for another day uh, as far as idols are concerned. But what I'm trying to tell you is that maybe we feel like because we're in this more sophisticated society, we're not like the tribe in the jungle who's creating little you know, gold or silver figurines. We don't have idols in our life. No, we're probably more susceptible to our idols because they're not things we, can't, we can see, feel, and touch. We've created the idol of self. And what we don't realize is when you worship a God who only agrees with you, never tells you to do something that is contrary to your will or your way, you're not worshiping the one true God, you're worshiping you, God. And my hope and my prayer is that you realize and understand that the you, God, will not save you. The you, God, will constantly let you down. But there's a one true God who many times will intentionally upset your regularly scheduled program because he has something better for you. The one true God does. He goes on from here in verse nine. He says, but with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. That's the reason, one of the main reasons I think that Jonah is not talking about the guys on the deck. He's talking about him because the next thing he says is what he's gonna do. He's confessing what he's done. He's saying what he's gonna do to make things even. He says, but with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And I love this word. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the key of the whole entire book of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's right there in the very middle of Jonah. There's 33 verses before this word, and there's 32 after this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But before salvation comes, sacrifice comes. See, this is what we miss out sometimes in our version of Christianity. There is no salvation without sacrifice. Now, some of you are going like, yeah, I know, duh, Jesus sacrificed for me. I'm not just talking about Jesus here, big fella. I'm also talking about you. See, when he says, what, what else do you think it means when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? If that doesn't mean you're going to have to sacrifice your whole life, your will, your way, what you thought things were going to be like. See, we, we bought into a version of the gospel that doesn't require our sacrifice. We just bank on Jesus' sacrifice so we never have to sacrifice anything. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is I'm sacrificing my whole entire life now, Jesus, because I realize how broken, messed up, and pointless, futile that life was. I'm sacrificing all of that to you to now take hold of the life that you sacrificed for me. That's the gospel. And that's where salvation begins. Because I cannot take hold of Jesus' sacrifice life if I'm trying to still hold on to mine. That's why he said, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose it, though, sacrifice it, though, you will save it. You'll save it. 
Nothing can take it away. And so what he calls us to be are living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. And as Jonah comes to this place where he realizes that that is what he is now making his life, a living sacrifice to God, verse 10 happens. It says, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, I don't know what this looks like. I love to close my eyes and think about it being like this. Like in him just landing head first in the sand. Like I, I have all sorts of imagination here. But that's really besides the point. The point is, at the point of Jonah realizing, understanding that he was going to sacrifice to God and that God alone was bringing him salvation, that is when he was delivered. Not from the fish, but through the fish. Now, the question I want to ask you is, have you surrendered to the God who's chasing? In order to surrender, maybe you have to really see what his discipline is. See, the question I want to ask you is this. If God delivers you, but he never disciplines you, how will you ever learn? Some of you right now are mad about how God is, what God is doing in your life, or what maybe he's even, and again, we talked about this a little last week. It's not to say he's doing everything that's bad in your life. Sometimes he will allow bad things to happen. He's not the author and perfecter of all negative. He's the author and perfecter of good. He's not the author of confusion. He's the author of truth. He is truth. But sometimes he will allow some things to get shooken up in your life. And sometimes we can mistake the discipline for God being absent. We can mistake the discipline for God not caring but the problem is, is, is we get in discipline mode. Like God starts doing things that we don't like in our life and we just want him to deliver us out of them. And God, again, he is a father, a good father. And he knows that if I just deliver you out of this and I never discipline in this, you never learn, you never change, you never grow. The Bible word there is you're not sanctified. You're saved. You're still you. You're still your old self. You still got your old habits. I need those things to fall and fade away. See, Jonah surrendered. He surrendered to water. And what I want to invite you to today is to surrender to the God who chases. And I want to talk specifically and invite specifically here today to the person who's here and you have not been baptized. In a minute, I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you've never been baptized, we have everything you need, males and females included, to be baptized today. Now, the Bible makes this very clear to us, guys. And the story of Jonah backs this up that when you put your faith and trust in Christ, it is faith. And biblical faith is not just, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. He's my Lord and Savior. He's the Son of God. He died and rose again, and he is mine. Biblical faith is, I believe that to be true about Jesus. And now I surrender my life to him. Whatever he says to do, I'll do it. And that surrendered obedience is evidence that I actually really believe what I say I believe. Because I can say I love my children and then spend all of my waking hours over here at the office trying to take care and grow the church to millions and millions. But I don't really love my family. I could say I love them. I could send them text messages and tell them those things. But if my obedience, if my surrender, if my actions don't back up what I actually say, then it's not true. And the first thing that Scripture tells us to do, the first act of surrender to Jesus, is not church attendance. The first act of surrender to Jesus is not even a Bible reading plan. The first act of surrender to Jesus isn't even a great prayer life. The first act of surrender to Jesus is baptism. And in the same way that we see in Jonah, that surrender into the water is what paved the way for salvation. And baptism is the same for us. It paves the way for salvation. It proves that salvation is real because I'm not being disobedient to the, point, the very, just right there, unavoidable, can't get over it, fact that he said, repent, believe, be baptized, follow, make disciples. Some of you are wondering, why am I having such a hard time? Why am I in such a storm right now? Your Nineveh was baptism. You just never did it. You never went. You're like, well, life has been weird. It's been, it's been harder than it has to be. I'm emotionally exhausted. I want to invite you today to surrender to the God who's chasing you and surrender into the waters of baptism. As the band comes and sings a song, I'm just going to be right there in, in, in the very back at the welcome table. 
And if today you want to give your life to Christ and be baptized, maybe you feel like you may have already given your life to Christ and you're nervous like, well, I don't want, I've been in Sunday school for years and years and years. I don't want people to think I'm just now becoming a Christian. Well, first of all, quit thinking about what other people think and think about what God thinks. And God thinks, hey, I made it really clear in my word that you're supposed to be baptized. And today is the day where you actually surrender. I'm going to be back there. I want to invite you to take that big step of surrender. If you've never been baptized in water, if you never have baptism you can even remember that makes sense or is, or, or is one that you made. Now, some of you here in this room, you're one of those people and you're like, well, I was baptized when I was a baby. To which I would say, upon whose faith were you baptized? Was that your parents' faith or was that yours? And I'm not trying to be contradictory. I'm not trying to get you all questioning things. I'm not trying to mess up your theology here, but I'm just trying to ask you a really simple question. Who's, upon whose faith were you baptized? Did you make that decision or was it made for you? If you're here and you've never made a decision to surrender your life publicly to Christ and go into the waters of baptism, as this song sings, I'm gonna be back there and I wanna invite you in. We'll go upstairs, we have everything you need. We'll baptize you and we'll celebrate your surrendered life Christ. That's what the gospel does, is it leads us to those places. You're here and you have been baptized. This is a time of communion for you. We hear the gospel and we respond through communion. We respond to the the source of that sacrifice and what made that sacrifice and that salvation possible. Jesus' broken body, Jesus' poured out blood, the temple being torn in two there on the cross for you. And I pray you come and you ask and maybe a question today of Jesus, I know you've forgiven me from the penalty of sin. But I need your grace to help me from the power of sin in this area. And you let him cut, pry, and poke however he needs to on that part of your life today. I'm gonna pray, I want you to receive communion. And if the God, God of heaven is working on your heart, you wanna surrender it to him and be baptized. I'll be back there and be honored to take you into the waters of salvation. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Move and work in your people today. Help nobody to to make excuses with you today, but to just stand and be confident. Know that delayed obedience is disobedience. If Jonah's story tells us nothing, it tells us that. Move when you say move, to go where you say go. And that saying no to you is a risky endeavor. Move in the hearts and lives of your people. In your name.